if you weren't here last week, last week we were talking about uh, the importance of prayer. And if you were here on Sunday, you saw that we are opening up in our time of prayer and fasting. And uh, if you have any questions about that, I'm more than happy to answer. You can go back and look over that message. But part of why I wanted to talk about that and what I want to talk about tonight is I want to start focusing in over these few weeks over some really key and essential things that are important when it comes to your walk with God. And part of why this has been on my heart so much is uh, there's uh, just kind of as I'm listening to a lot of people and I'm reading things online, uh, more and more there's this thing becoming more popular called uh, the deconstruction of faith. And essentially what that is, it's people who have grown up in, in Christian faith or in other faiths, I would imagine, but particularly what I'm concerned about is people who've grown up Christians and as they get older, they're, they're starting to deconstruct, to pull apart their faith. And what a lot of these people are doing is as they're pulling apart, they lose their faith. They feel like, well, there, there really isn't any substance to my faith. And they walk away and become atheists and give up on God altogether. And I'm sure there's a number of reasons why a person might reach that conclusion. Uh, but one of the ones I think is most permanent or at least most plausible is that as they start to pull away at their faith and they get to the root of their faith, they find out they're not really rooted in much. See, what, what a lot of people have when it comes to faith is they, they grew up in a religion. They were forced to go to church by mom or dad. They were forced to go to Sunday schools, maybe even forced to go to youth group. They sang the songs. They, they heard the messages. They went to the camps. They went to the retreats. They had a little bit of emotional reactions because the preacher was good and the music got loud. And They had moments, but they never had relationship. They had glimpses, but they never had actual for personal foundational growth in their walk. And so as a result, it was always flickers and never a flame. It was always momentary things. It was a relationship through somebody else's relationship with God. And so as they get older and they start to ask these existential questions or these deep founded, man, do I really believe what I think I believe? They find out, no, but you never really believed it anyway. Because you never had your own real personal relationship with God. You came to youth group, you kind of blew it off. You just wanted to hang out with your friends. You thought you were a Christian because you did all the things that Christians do on the outside. But you never actually, like we talked about last week, you never prayed. You never, in your own personal time, have communication with God as we talked about was so important. And tonight is, is a second layer to that that I think is equally as important. You don't know God because you never spent time with God. And part of that spending time with God comes in this book right here. The Bible talks about foundations in a, in a parable of, of sinking sand and on a rock, right? And it says that the person who builds his house on the sand, when that sand begins to slip, the house falls apart. But he who builds his house on a rock, something stable, something concrete, if I can say, when storms and, and, and hard things in life come, they're able to withstand it. Why? Because they have a solid foundation, and I need you to know this. This isn't a guess. This isn't an exaggeration. I believe this to be 100% fact. You will never have a thriving personal relationship with Jesus Christ if you don't understand and read his word. Impossible. You won't. You'll know about him, but you'll never know him. This is one of the greatest determining factors on whether or not you will be a Christian 10 years from now. 
Because 10 years from now, Pastor Joe is not going to be a youth pastor holding your hand. Your youth leader is not going to be grabbing you on Fridays, holding you accountable. There's not going to be a bunch of people texting you and saying, hey, did you read your word? There's going to come a moment where you're going to find out if your walk is really your walk. And when you pick this up and you become unfamiliar with it and you realize, I never even took the time to read this thing. Well, how do you know who God is if you never wrote, read the letter he left to you? This, and I can't stress this enough, is unbelievably critical to you ever having a relationship with God. And this is something that I harp on every single time when it comes to your leaders. Uh, and your leaders will tell you nine times out of ten when they sit down with me and there's an issue, there's a problem, the first question I ask is how are you doing in your devotional life? Because nine times out of ten, I know it's out of whack. You're out of whack because your time with God is out of whack. You haven't been reading your Bible. You don't know the instructions from God. You don't know what God's calling you to do. You're in an emotional and a spiritual funk because God's not restoring you. Everything that you need has been written down in the recipe book, but you're not looking at it. And so when they sit down with me, I'm like, well, what do you expect me to tell you? that God can't tell you in his word. And so we want these shortcuts into a relationship with God. And so one of the things I talk to when it comes to our leaders and one of the determining factors on whether I even allow somebody to serve on the team is are you reading your Bible? Do you understand it? As a matter of fact, I'm actually in a course right now uh, studying the New Testament and you know, I, I wrote a bunch of papers and my professors are all giving me 100, so I feel real good about myself, kind of feeling myself right at the moment, you know, 100% on my quizzes, your boy still can do it. And, uh, and, I, and I'm so excited, like reading about ancient Jewish cultures and Hebrew contexts and canonization and I'm just like, this is fun to me, why? Because I love God's word. And I don't mind deconstructing my faith because I feel like it only makes it richer because it's founded on something biblical and solid. And so I want to give you some background on that and why I think that's important. And so in your Bibles, if you want to open up to Deuteronomy or if you want to write that down so you can look it up later, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's, there's a very interesting concept or, or portion in chapter 17. Uh, this is part of what they call the books of Moses, right? So these are the first five books of the Old Testament or, or the Torah, the Jewish Bible. Uh, and Deuteronomy, it's kind of crazy because this is talking to the Israelites and, and it's giving them instructions on what to do when they have a king. Now, the wild thing is they've never had a king and they're actually historically not going to have a king for at least a few hundred years after this was written. But the crazy thing is God never intended or wanted them to have a king because God is saying, I'm your king. You don't need an earthly king. But God sometimes understands our flesh and what we're going to do, and he makes provisions for that anyway. So looking at the Israelites, he's like, you know what? You don't need a king. I'm your king, but I know y'all. And at some point, you're going to look at all the other tribes and kingdoms around you, and you're going to realize, well, he has a king, and they have a king, and they have a, well, we, we want a king too. Everybody else got a king. I want a king, right? And listen, we're like that, aren't we? You don't even want something, but you see everybody else got, well, everybody else got one. Did you want one? Right? Like, fellas, you can be in the room. Everybody get Barbies, and you're like, well, everybody else got a Barbie. Do you, are you going to play with the Barbie? I mean, maybe. I don't know. Maybe if I had one, I would. Right? So, like, we have this weird thing about us where if everybody else got it, we want everybody else got Jordans. I want Jordans. Do you really need them? No, but everybody else got them. Well, that's the thing. And so God's like, I know you guys. I know you're going to look at all these other places, and you're going to see them all have kings, and you're going to want a king. So if it's going to get to that point, here's some instructions that you might as well follow if you're going to go ahead and grab a king anyway. And here's where we find ourselves. These are instructions that they're giving to them for the king, for the ruler of this nation. 
And beginning in verse 14, I'm going to read 14 through 20. Listen to what the word of God says. He says, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like all the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man your Lord, the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because he will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. Now, here's the thing I really want you to focus in on. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. All right, so part of the role as a king is he has to open the Bible, essentially what they had as far as the Bible at that time, the scripture, they had to open it up and he had to copy it in front of the Levitical priests. Now, let me just pause here for a moment to give you some context because uh, a lot of people are, well, how do you, how do you believe you know, the, in the Bible? The Bible was written by man, which by the way, every book ever written was written by man. That's a stupid argument. I always think that's dumb. Um, but one of the things we have when it comes to the historical accuracy of the Bible, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament, is some of the rabbinical laws, the, the rules that the priest had when it came to copying the Bible. Okay, so when a scribe would copy the Bible, they had a ton of rules that they had to follow. For example, you had to copy letter by letter. You couldn't copy a word. So if you could spell the word father, you couldn't be like F-A-T-H-E-R. You had to go F-F-A-A-T-T, one letter at a time. Every letter had to be a hair's width apart. I mean, it was like insane, the detail. And by the way, if at any point in the manuscript, I mean, you could be like towards the end, you could have written the biggest scroll you could ever imagine, right? You could be right at the end, it could be six blocks long. And if you put a question mark instead of a period, if, if you write the wrong letter, if you spell it the wrong, whatever little detail is off, if you didn't do the hair length or whatever, the entire manuscript had to be burned and you had to start over again. So could you imagine, right, you got like a 45-page research paper, you spend all night on it, you go real ham on it, you turn it in, she looks at it and she goes, oh, your cover, you were missing a period on that, throws it in the trash? How many of y'all know? I would have dropped out right then and there, like, no, no school for me, okay? But this is how, like, crazy it was. And so even the king, they're saying, we don't care that you're the king, you have to sit down and in front of the priest, copy on a scroll this word of God. And then it goes on to say, he must always keep that copy with him and read it daily, how long? As long as he lives. So every day for the remainder of his life, he has to keep this word with him and read it every day. Here's what's going to happen as a result. That way, he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. The regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he's above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. He's saying, listen, if you do this, if you stay dedicated to the reading of God's worth, 
word on a daily basis, there's some incredible benefits for your life. And this is what I need you to understand because this, this isn't homework. This isn't like an assignment that you have to do or you're going to fail class. Although we should be concerned that we put more effort into getting an A in trig than we do into growing spiritually. But what he's saying is if you focus in every day and read your word, there are some incredible benefits that are going to be produced in your life. So I want to just go through three real quick that the Bible mentions here. And if you're taking notes, the first thing is this. God's word will keep you faithful. God's word will keep you faithful to God. A lot of us, you know, we don't ever think, like again, I think a lot of people who maybe cheated on their spouses, they didn't get married thinking, can't wait to cheat on this person. What happens is, over time, there's a series of small decisions, little things that they let slide. You know, miscommunication, they start letting themselves flirt with other people, they start letting other people get into their DMs, and, and it's all these subtle little things that they don't think is a big deal, but the Bible says it's the small foxes that spoil the vine. It's these little things that start to build up. And so what happens here is, you know, we think, well, you know, it's not a big deal. I, I didn't read my Bible today, it's just one day. It's just two days. It's just a week. It's just a month. Like, I read the whole thing already. Like, you know, I grew up in church. Like, I know the Bible. Well, it's just this. It's just that. And these little things start to pull us away. And then we start to wonder, why don't I not believe in God anymore? Why is it that so-and-so who was on fire, who was killing it for the Lord, has walked away? I've been a part of this ministry as its pastor for over 13 years. I've been a part of this ministry as a participant since I was 15. I'm going to be 37 in a couple of weeks. I've been here a long time. And I have seen plenty of people who started out on fire and didn't even graduate smoldering. Who completely and utterly walk away from God in every way, shape, or form. And as I've tracked a lot of their lives, I can trace a lot of it back to them never having a relationship with his book. They never knew God, and so it's not hard to leave God when you don't know God. See, if, if you stay consistent as the Bible is telling the king he's called to, and I know a lot of you are like, well, I'm not a king. You are a king. You're a king and a queen of your own life. You have authority over your life to a certain extent. You have decisions that you make on a regular basis. You get to choose who you're friends with. You get to choose how you behave. You get to choose what you interact with. I mean, I know a lot of you feel like you don't get a lot of choices, but you got some. And how you make those choices in your life is going to be strongly determined by what you know or what you don't know, right? Let's say I said, hey, I got a present for you, and it's behind one of those three doors in the back. You can wildly guess, or you can say, which door has the present? Door number two. Made life a lot easier, didn't it? But some of us think, well, I just got to figure it out. Yeah, but you can figure it out a lot easier when you open the book. This word will keep you faithful. Listen, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. It says, for David, this is King David now, for David has done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and had obeyed the Lord's commands throughout his life, except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. King David, he's the second king of Israel. The first king was a man named Saul, and after Saul, and we'll get to that in a minute, comes King David. And King David, by all intents and purposes, is a phenomenal king. I mean, he's the guy that slayed Goliath. He, he took on so much territory. There were songs sung about him. I mean, David is up there. And the Bible is clear. He had done what was pleasing in the Lord's eye, and he obeyed the Lord's command, except for one time. 
One time where he wasn't what he was supposed to be doing, where he probably wasn't reading his word, and he caught himself in a position where he shouldn't be. He caught himself lusting after a woman who was married to one of his soldiers, using his authority to sleep with that woman, impregnating her, and then killing her husband to cover it up. So it's not like he just missed a few verses and then cussed, okay? He did everything God commanded, but the one time he slipped up and didn't follow the Lord's commands, it cost the man his life, and it cost him eventually the life of his own child. Listen, some of us, what you need to understand is when, he, when Deuteronomy says that this king must do this, it says all the days of his life. So it doesn't matter if you've been reading the Bible for the first 15 years of your life. God willing, there's a lot more years after that. What are you going to do with the rest of the years of your life? See, there is never a moment. We will read this book until we stand face to face with the Lord one day. This is the key. I don't care if you've read it your whole life. I don't care if you think you're an expert on it. The Bible is living and active. There is always something that you're going to get from or you're going to understand in a different way. Part of it is not because it changes. It's because you change. And I use this example all the time. But if you think about it, some of you are old enough to get it now. Some of you, if you watch some of the cartoons you saw when you were a kid, particularly stuff like SpongeBob, and you watch the reruns and you're like, oh, I did not get that joke when I was six. That joke is different than how I remember it. Well, it's a rerun. They didn't redo the episode. You and your understanding grew. And because your understanding grew, when you saw the same thing, you understood it better. So there are things in the Bible that maybe you read a year ago, but when you read it again this year, after having gone through what you've gone through in the last year, and how many know we've gone through some stuff in the last couple of years. Well, once you read it now, you read it with a different context. You read it with a different experience. And you're thinking, no, 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 this is completely different than what I thought before. Not because the word changed, but because you changed. And the word is living and active. It's continually teaching you wherever you go. David followed the Lord's command, except for one time. And it cost the life of two people. And it ruined a lot of his ministry. Listen, it only takes one time to lose your family. It only takes one time to lose your testimony. It only takes one time. One time where you've gotten away from God's word. But if you stay in God's word... It'll keep you faithful. One of the quotes that I I wrote down that I love, and you may want to write this down because I think it's good, and I'll repeat it again, but this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin, but when you sin, you're not going to want to look at this book. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. If you're taking notes, though, the second thing is not only will God's word keep you faithful, but God's word will keep you humble. God's word has a way of keeping you humble. Uh, I love this quote by uh, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see the things above you. It's easy to be cocky and arrogant when you look down on somebody who sins differently than you do. It's it's easy to be cocky and arrogant when when you judge somebody because they look differently or because they grew up within a different context or, or have a different family dynamic. But when you read God's word and you begin to understand that God's grace is written all over your life and everything you have and every accomplishment you've made and every growth you've experienced is a result of the grace of God, every time you read this word, you're reminded, I am not worthy of God. I get them anyway. 
God, I look at this and I look at who you are and I look at how you live and I, and I can't help but feel so much smaller in comparison to you. And yet you still love me and you still want me. And one of our greatest battles that we have is, is in our mind going one way or the other. Now, the typical one is I'm not good enough. But the other extreme of that is I'm so good, I don't need God. I got this. I figured out life. I've nailed this. I'm doing okay. What do I need God for? Listen, Isaiah 66, verse 1 through 2 says it like this. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Oh, I love that. God is saying, hey, this, this nice building with everything that's going on, yeah, that's cute. But your earth is my footstool. And the galaxy, the universe, that's my throne. Like, it is so great. Can you build me something like that, the Lord says? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth, and they are everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humbled and contrite hearts who tremble at my word. When you read God's word and you understand who God is, it's easy to understand who you are not, right? Y'all ever been in front of like a really, really tall person, like a seven-footer? You don't realize how short you are until you realize how tall they are. Like even some of you who feel like you're tall, like you're tall by like Latino standards, which isn't all that tall, okay? Like you're tall among Guatemalans. They ain't tall. You're tall among Mexicans. They're not tall. And then you stand in front of a seven-footer, and you're like, oh, he tall, tall, like that's a whole different kind of tall. Well, it's the same thing, right? Like, we think we got things together. We think we're managing our own life, and we got things figured out. And, and then we stand before an awesome God, and we're like, no, no, you, you, you're God, God. Like, you got it on a whole nother level. And in comparison to you, I am so, so small. And the beauty of that reflection on God is it doesn't make you feel inferior as much as it makes him feel great. Like you understand the greatness of God. And instead of feeling like nothing, if I could say it that way, you're just humbled in the reality of your nothingness. So I don't feel bad about myself. I'm humbled that someone so great loves someone so small. That someone so powerful wants to be a part of someone so weak. That someone so wonderful loves someone so messed up. That's what happens when you begin to study and read God's word, when you begin to really pull apart the layers. And I think one of the things we often struggle with in our reality is not our struggle with loving God, it's our struggle with letting God love us. And when you get to that humbling part, right, because humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? That's the old saying. It's understand that life's not about me. And because it's only by the grace of God that I have been saved in any way, shape, or form that I have anything, suddenly you don't ask God for much because you realize you don't owe me anything, God. So what you do give me, I take it humbly. What you do allow me to do, I'm grateful. Like it just changes the attitude of your heart. It changes the attitude of your mind. So suddenly you're not sitting there looking at somebody else's Instagram feeling salty because they're thinner than you or they look better than you or they got more drip than you and, and you're sitting there feeling all salty about yourself. That doesn't matter because you understand that's just clothes. That's going to go out of style in five years anyway. 
That's going to end up at a thrift store in a few months. And I'll buy it at a quarter of the price you paid for it. No, I'm humbled because of the greatness of God. Not only will God's word keep you faithful and keep you humble, but God's word will keep you holy. The word holy, it means set apart. It means special. It means unique. That's holy. We, we do that with a lot of things, right? Some of you, somebody made me laugh one time. I was bending over to do something. They're like, you're going to crease your shoes. And I was like, I'm, I'm a grown man. I'll buy another pair of shoes. Like, who cares? It's not that big a deal. But, you know, it's kind of the thing now. It's like, oh, you can't crease your shoes. Why? Well, you're making that holy. You're making that set apart, right? You'd rather take your shoes off and walk through a puddle in socks than walk through it in your shoes. I just think that's weird. But that's what you're doing is you're keeping that set apart. Or we all do that with certain things where it's like, no, that's, like, I would do that with remote controls. Like, when people would come over to play on my PlayStation, there was my control, and y'all play with the other controllers. Why? Because this, this was holy. Because this is the only one where the buttons don't stick and everything works right. Like, this is my control. <laughs> or this is my favorite color control, right? Like, we do things like that where we set them apart. Well, God's word is what begins to set you apart from everything else in this world. God's word is what begins to make you look more like him and less like everybody else. So when Ephesians says this, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, I want you to understand in a different context. We read this and we typically think marriage, but let me dig deep, deep on this. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now listen to this next part. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. God's purpose in his sacrifice is to make you, the church, holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. So how are you holy? How are you made clean before God? The washing of the word. It's the word that even helps you recognize that you're filthy, right? It's the word of God that helps you pass that sniff test. Y'all ever had that moment where like, you're like, man, do I need to shower today? You ever had that? Like maybe you're on, some of y'all during holiday break, you had to see how long you can go a few days without showering. And you do that real quick like, yeah, no, I need to shower today. Some of you ladies might do a little, yeah, that's no, I got a shower today. What'd you do? You checked. David, you got a shower today? You made a little cough over there like you... You, you did a little check, right? It, it's the Bible that begins to become a mirror to you. The Bible even describes it in James, that it's a mirror to your life, that when you look into it, you see a reflection of yourself. And how bogus would it be if you look in the mirror in the morning before you go to school and you got some crusty eye boogers and even wear some big old booger hanging out, cliff hanging out the side of your nostril? Could you imagine seeing that and then going, eh, I'm all right, and then just walking away? But it's the word of God that helps you recognize, hey, you might want to adjust that before you go outside. You might want to take care of that before you move forward. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church. Listen, some of us, we make the error of thinking we got to try harder to be holier. And I need you to understand that doesn't always work. As a matter of fact, I think it rarely works. Your effort has never been enough to make you holy. And too many of us, the reason we walk away from God is because we tried, we tried, we tried, we failed, we failed, we failed. We say, this is too hard, and we walk away from God. When God is saying, I never asked you to try, I asked you to be obedient and follow. Yeah. 
See, it's the washing of the word. It, it's, it's taking the pressure off yourself and beginning to read God's word and allowing God's word to minister to your life and allowing the spirit of God to bring conviction, to bring quality, to lift you up, to encourage you, to give you direction, to pour out blessing. It's the washing of the word that begins to flow over you. And now it's not a matter of, well, I just got to stop looking at porn or I just got to stop swearing or I just got to stop you know, messing around with these guys or with these girls. It's not about your effort. It's about God's ministry to you as he speaks to you. I mean, you ever just had a conversation with somebody and after that conversation, you're like, no, I got it now. Well, that's a conversation with the Lord every day so that you walk away from it going, I got it now. And again, I love that it uses the washing of the word because it goes back to what we said earlier about how the king needs to do this daily. Because we need to bathe daily. Some of you are like, oh, I can't bathe daily. It's not good for your skin. Sweetie, it's good for your skin. Bathe daily. Okay? Now, here's the problem. We limit our interaction with God to once, maybe twice a week. Can you imagine if you only showered once, twice a week? But you were still active. You're still on sports teams. You're still running around. You're still sweating up a storm. And here's what happens is we, we take a bath on Sunday. Just, just imagine this, right? Let's just say for whatever reason there's a water shortage and your, your mom and dad are like, hey, listen, I know you normally take showers. You got to take a bath today. So you go in the bath and you wash up. You take care of everything on Sunday. And then the next day you get ready to go take your shower. They're like, hey, shower's still not working. You're going to have to take a bath. But it's the same bath water from yesterday. Hey, I'm sorry. Water's not working. You're going to have to take a bath. So you take a bath the next day in the same bath water you took a bath the day before. Then Tuesday comes along, you get ready to take a shower, it pops like, mm-mm, bath. Guess what? By Wednesday, you're not cleaning yourself. You're just rearranging the dirt from the last few days all over your body. Well, that's what happens when the reading of the word is limited to the 30 minutes I'm preaching to you on a Thursday. You're taking a bath and you're just rearranging the dirt on Friday, Saturday. Come Sunday, you listen to pastor preach, you take a fresh bath. But now on Monday, Tuesday, you're rearranging the same dirty water. And you're wondering, well, how come I'm not growing spiritually? Because you're only bathing weekly. When you learn to bathe and allow the washing of the water of the word to come over you on a regular basis, then you'll be so fresh and so clean. Then you begin to understand what it means to move forward and who God called you to be. Appreciate you, Alex, picking up on that outcast. Let me close it up with this worship team or Pastor Jason, if you can help me out. Everybody else can just stay. Here's the deal. What we read in Deuteronomy, it's hundreds of years before they eventually have a king. Hundreds of years before eventually they uh, bring up a man named King Saul. And King Saul, he, he looks like a king. The Bible says that he's head and shoulders above everybody else, very kingly. But he messes up. He doesn't follow God's commands. And as a result, God replaces him with King David. Remember, we talked about being available. And if you're not, God will move on. Saul stopped making himself available, stopped listening to God's commands. And so God raises up David to take his place. Now David is the king who was faithful to God's commands, as we read, except for once. That one time resulted in the murder of Uriah the Hittite, who was married to Bathsheba. 
David ends up having a child with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathaniel comes to David about a year later, confronts him with his sin. And as a consequence of his sin, the baby him and Bathsheba have passes away. But David ends up taking Bathsheba as a wife and eventually has another child with Bathsheba by the name of Solomon. And Solomon raises or grows up to become the next king of Israel, the third king of Israel that we see. And this is where I want to take a few moments to look because I think it's so crazy and ironic that Solomon ends up breaking every rule and instruction that we see in Deuteronomy 17. Everything that they warned them not to let the king do, every warning that is given, Solomon messes up in. Remember it said, he must not be a man of many wives. Well, the Bible says that Solomon had hundreds of wives and mistresses on the side of that. And that as a result of these foreign wives, he ends up worshiping false gods. The king of Israel, God's chosen instrument, worshiping false gods. Why? Because he failed to listen to God's command. As a matter of fact, his first wife is an Egyptian. And one of the main rules he said is you must never go back to Egypt. He not only goes back, he gets a wife. Solomon ends up getting all these horses in his stable, and, and he ends up becoming one of the richest men in all of history, actually. Again, Deuteronomy warns him not to be somebody who collects all those riches. And eventually what he does is he, he ends up angering the people because he keeps overtaxing them so he can get richer and richer. And eventually, he loses the kingdom entirely, and there's a massive split among the Israelite kingdom. He ruined it. Remember, the promise was if, if you follow these commands, if you do what I ask, then you'll have somebody on the throne for generations. And it only lasted three. He loses the whole kingdom because slowly and steadily, beginning with Saul, even David, and eventually Solomon, the kings don't follow the decrees. They lost sight of God's word. And because they lost sight of God's word, they lost God's kingdom. Eventually, the kingdom of God gets taken over by nation after nation. The Babylonians take them over. Samaria takes them over. Everybody takes them over. They get conquered by everybody. And for about 400 years, they don't even hear from God anymore. 400 years, they don't ever hear from God. And I think part of that is because they stopped hearing from God before. But then something happens at the end of 400 years. They get a new king. They receive a king in Jesus Christ. And in John 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. And the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, So the word, the word of God, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory and the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And then verse 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. You want a revelation, an understanding, a clarity of who God is? Read it. Listen, I'm just going to be transparent and honest, and this is why I love youth ministry. Y'all are too grown to sit on a magic carpet and wait for teacher to read to you. That's what I do for my two-year-old. My two-year-old, we have Bible school. We sit down, we open the word. We teach her about Jesus. We teach her about, I mean, right now we're teaching her about um, the Old Testament and uh, we are teaching her about King Esther or Queen Esther. She has her little crown or cape and little Queen Esther doll. But that's my two-year-old. You're not a two-year-old. So why are you relegating your understanding of God's word to sitting on a magic carpet every Thursday night, letting me walk you through it when you're old enough to understand things for yourself? I mean, I'm not going to lie. Most of you in this room are better students than I ever was. You go to good schools, not as good as my school was, but you go to good schools. You get good grades. Some of you blow me away with some of the things you're able to do and some of your ACT scores and, and what you do. So I don't think you're dumb. And even if you were academically challenged, it's the Holy Spirit that brings transparency to God's words. You don't have to be a genius to read it. Matter of fact, it was written at a sixth grade level, so everybody here got the bare minimum. No, I don't think it's a lack of intelligence. Honestly, can we be real? I think it's a lack of desire. You don't want to do it. And I don't know about you, but I have enough self-respect. You don't want a relationship with me? Whatever. That's on you. I'm amazing. <laughs> so you don't want to be my friend? Don't be my friend. But then don't get mad at me because you don't get the benefits of my friendship. Some of us, we want all the good things from God except the relationship with God. And God is saying, listen, I died on the cross and I made a way for you and I to have a relationship. The least you can do is stop leaving me on red. The least you can do is open it up and start to study. And if I could take it one step further, particularly when it comes to your generation, and I'm not picking on it, I'm, I'm challenging you with this. There has never in the history of the word, in the history of the Bible, ever been as much available to you on a technical or a technology-based point that can walk you through scripture like what you have now. There are YouTube videos, there are apps, there are curriculums. I mean, it is inexhaustible the amount of resources you have so that none of you have an excuse to go, well, I don't understand it. And on top of all the resources that are out there right now, free of charge, by the way, you have people in this room who love you, who care for you, who are willing to walk you through it if you're willing to do it. So because it's all available, the only conclusion I can come up with is you don't care enough to do it. And if you don't care enough to do it, there's nobody that can convince you to do that. All I'm saying is, if you think, well, I do care, don't tell me that. Prove that. By taking responsibility for the reading of God's word. If you're sitting here going, well, I don't even know where to start. Easy, start with one of the gospels. Start with the gospel of John, I always say. It's one of the easiest gospels. And when you read John, talk to me next. You can read Acts. After you read Acts, we can read Paul's prison epistles. I can walk you through everything. No problem. That's easy. 
I can't walk you through desire. That's you. So I'm going to ask you to stand up as we get ready to close. I'm not going to make a, a major altar call or an emotional plea with you. You either want to know the Lord or you don't want to know the Lord. You either want a real relationship with him or you're satisfied with just being an acquaintance, calling on God every now and then when maybe you need something but never really knowing him. Which, by the way, you know that feeling when you know you should pray and you, you feel awkward about asking God for anything? Part of that is because you don't have that closeness with God. Because when I'm close to somebody, I got no problem asking you. Like if we family, I go all up in your fridge. I won't even ask you. If I'm at your house, I'm getting myself something to eat. You want something? I'll get you something back from your own kitchen. Why? We're close. You know what I'm talking about? You put your feet up on somebody's couch when you're at their house. You be like, you walking away with their shoes. It's like, no, that's too close now. <laughs> but when you don't know them, you don't even talk to them. You tell your other friend to tell them. Well, stop going to God through me because you got access yourself. And I am more than help, happy to help you grow in that access. And I promise you, and I can make this guarantee, that if you dedicate yourself to God's word, you will grow in every way imaginable. And you will be able to maintain a spiritual walk as long as you live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I tried as best as I can to communicate the importance of reading your word and studying. But Holy Spirit, there are some things that only you can lead in a person's heart. Holy Spirit, I ask even now, would you bring conviction to our hearts tonight, God? Lord, even those of us who, who we do read the word, but we also understand that maybe we could take it up a notch. Maybe we've gotten used to our routines and, and we're not getting the same results we used to get and, and we're feeling that pull to go a little bit deeper. But God, even for that person in the room who has never read their Bible, who doesn't even have a Bible, God, I pray, would you move in their hearts and in their desire to know you more and would you help them, Father God, to seek and to find you, to make that effort because your word says that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. But we understand, God, that you put the pressure on us to move first. So Holy Spirit, I ask, bring that sweet conviction into our hearts. And even further than that, God, help us to not be lazy. Help us to not be forgetful. Help us to make this time with you and our word a priority for our life. The same way we prioritize our homework, the same way we prioritize looking at things online and, and scrolling through stuff, Lord, the same way we prioritize the things that we desire, let this become our greatest desire, God, to know you and to be known by you. So Father, we thank you, first and foremost, for your word, for access to it, for understanding of it, for all the biblical scholars who spend hours upon hours simplifying some of these biblical truths so that you and I in this room can know God more. Help us, Father, every time we open that book to receive fresh revelation from your spirit, that your word would come to life in our eyes. And even further than that, God, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we would put it into practice and be doers of your word. We thank you for that, God. We thank you that you have given us 
these instructions in life. You don't let us wander around aimlessly, but you've given us just what we need to know to manage and to thrive in this life you've given us. So we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, one last thing before you go. I want to just give you a couple of resources in case you really are interested about digging deeper. Some of the favorite things that I love, uh, YouTube channel, The Bible Project is an absolute fan favorite. I adore that thing. Um, and so if you want to look that up, that will help you break down every book in the Bible. It'll explain everything for you with illustration, with clear four-minute explanation. It's wonderful. Uh, when you're studying your word, if you want commentary, Bible Hub is good. Blue Letter Bible is good. There's a ton of resources online. If you want more stuff, all the leaders have everything that I talk about and more, and you can talk to me afterward. Man, I really want to challenge you. Just start, okay? Even if you don't understand everything, walk away with something. Amen? God bless you guys. I love you guys, and I will see you Sunday.